Good afternoon. Welcome with this um, fourth lecture already for network uh, security. Uh, this lecture will be divided in three parts. In the first part, I will tell something about security protocols for the transport layer. Uh, that's still roughly quarter past two, 20 minutes past two. Then um, I think Anna or you both together, uh, Giovanna, will tell something about the assignment that Kerkhoff students have to do, which is a honeypot assignment. And then after the break, Georgios Karigianis continues with uh, RADIUS, which is a kind of authentication protocol which runs at the application layer. So these are the three parts that um, we will discuss today. Um, I somehow decided not to present here the answers for the homework exercise because then it would be recorded and then I had to invent a new one for next year. Um, I don't know yet how I will deal with that exactly. So, um, okay. Are there any questions before I begin? Maybe you noticed already that the recordings of the previous lecture are on accessible via the Blackboard site. Um, if there are no questions, then let's look at more detail what is it that we are going to do this uh, afternoon till, yeah, say, the next half hour. I will look at uh, two protocols which are useful for security with the transport layer. First, I will look at uh, SSL TLS. SSL stands for Secure Socket Layer. Um, there are some protocols that are part of SSL TLS which I will discuss. Then we will have one slide where we discuss about HTTPS. HTTPS is something you, I guess, all know, um, but it is basically built on SSL. And then uh, I will continue with SSH, Secure Shell, which again consists of a couple of protocols. I will uh, first give the architecture of SSH and then discuss the individual protocols. So that is the plan for the next, uh, say, half an hour. Uh, and we start, therefore, with uh, SSL, TLS. As I said already, SSL stands for Secure Socket Layer. Um, and it is a protocol that uh, provides uh, privacy and data integrity. Uh, it is a protocol that is already around there for 15 years. It is originally developed by uh, Netscape uh, in 1995. And there have been different versions. Uh, currently, we have SSL version 3. But uh, SSL version 2 has been around for a while. And it was developed by Netscape because Netscape was the, say, um, yeah, company building very important uh, browsers at that time. And they saw the need to have secure transactions over the web. And so they thought, okay, let's develop something such that people can do payments over the web, can transfer data over the web without running the risk that someone will read that data, etc. So that is the background. Uh, the, the browser company Netscape um, wanted to have secure solutions for web browsing. The first versions of uh, SSL had uh, yeah, different key sizes. Uh, what you see with many security protocols is that in the US you had often 128 bits, but in the mid-90s 
of the previous millennium, um, there were still some laws in the US that did not allow to export encryption technology to other countries. And so um, if you want to export something outside the US, you had to uh, limit the key lengths to 40 bits. And 40 bits, even at that time, was something that you could easily break. This would make sure that all encrypted information could still be tapped and analyzed by the CIA or whatever. Um, nowadays, these rules are relaxed, of course, and um, we uh, work with longer key sizes. Okay, that's a bit SSL. So it comes from Netscape, comes from the, the web browsing uh, industry. Um, was quite successful, and because it was successful, it was taken over by the IETF, which continued standardization under the term TLS, Transport Layer Security. Basically, uh, TLS is based on um, yeah, version 3 of SSL, so Netscape stopped further progressing and uh, moved the activities to the uh, IETF. Um, and you have, of TLS, again, two versions. You have uh, 1.0 and 1.1, which are basically the same, except that in 1.1, some things are um, better explained. There's some better protection against a couple of attacks. So um, 1.1 is just an improved version of 1. If you look at TLS, it is not, if you look at the spec, um, compatible with SSL in the sense that an SSL function at one side cannot talk with TLS. Sorry. That was the wake-up call. Um, it is not the case that an uh, SSL function at one side can talk with a TLS function at the other side. However, if you look at implementations, then you see that they can negotiate if the TLS one sees, hey, the other one is only supporting SSL, then the implementation is always able to switch back to SSL. So you choose which operation you use, uh, and it's not that you just yeah, have SSL talking with TLS. So, um, so this is a bit uh, the, yeah, the background relation between uh, SSL TLS. If you now look at the goals of TLS, um, I will, by the way, uh, focus on TLS. If you look at the book, it focuses on SSL. But, um, yeah, there's not an awful difference between both. If you look at the TLS goals, uh, and they have been defined in an uh, RFC. Um, in case you don't know, the IETF is uh, standardizing uh, all kinds of uh, protocols. Uh, they write documents, and these documents are usually called RFC, and an RFC is abbreviation for Request for Commands. Some of these RFCs become standards, but it's not the opposite way around. That, um, if an RFC has a number, it is therefore a standard. So let's, uh, if you have a standard, it has an RFC, but if it is an RFC, it's not automatically a standard. There are now more than 5,500 RFCs around, so um, that would also be a bit too much. Anyway, uh, TLS, the goals are defined in an uh, IETF uh, RFC, and um, they have a couple of goals. First, of course, they want to provide cryptographic security. 
And with uh, cryptographic uh, security, they uh, want data integrity. So if you transfer data over the web, um, and someone in the middle would be able to tap that data, the person in the middle would not be able to understand what the data is about. So data integrity is one of the goals. But also authentication is one of the optional goals. And that's a bit strange because if you think about the web, then one of the first things that you would like to know is, is the other party whom I'm talking to indeed the, yeah, my bank? Um, so although the standard says um, authentication is optional, um, in practice it's a service site that is how most people use it. What you further see if you look at this cryptographic security is that, uh, like basically all protocols, the data exchange itself is based on symmetric encryption. Um, who could, or who still knows why we use for data exchange symmetric key algorithm, symmetric encryption? What was the reason? Someone there? Other people who know it? Who has no clue? And the rest is, is just sitting here. Good. Um, who wants to say it? Speed. Speed, yes. Um, and this is something that I will repeat again and again because if I ask it at the exam, still people don't know. Uh, if you have symmetric key algorithms, then encryption is relatively fast. If you have uh, public-private uh, keys, then uh, encryption is quite time and CPU con uh, consuming. So the data itself is uh, using symmetric uh, keys, but um, if you want to establish uh, TLS connection, you first have this public-private key exchange uh, stuff. Um, the second goal is interoperability. And interoperability means basically that they uh, do not want to include implementation details. So they just specify functionality. Then they have um, extensibility is an important goal. And extensibility basically means that at the moment that you have new and better encryption or authentication algorithms, you can just add them. So you don't have to change the spec. You just yeah, extend the uh, uh, TLS uh, protocol. And um, the final goal that they have is uh, relative efficiency. What they mean with that is that they use caching. Uh, so if you make a TLS connection to a web server, and yeah, you have exchanged the data, so the connection can be uh, closed, then there will still be a cache for a while that allows you to start a new TLS connection, and then you don't have to go through this expensive first public-private key negotiation phase, but you can continue basically <coughs> uh, with the things that you had the keys you already negotiated before. Um, they invented that because if you look at HTTP, and especially HTTP is 1.0, uh, you had to create a new connection, a transport pro uh, connection, for every object that you retrieve. So it can be that the page has 10 objects, style sheets, some pictures, etc. And with HTTP 1.0, you had to create 10 TCP connections, so 10 TLS connections. And if you create 10 TLS connections and you have to go 10 times through the same 
public-private key exchange uh, mechanism, it's quite uh, expensive. So that's why they have caching. We'll see that if with SSH, we don't have that caching because it is designed for a completely different uh, application. Okay, let's now look at the um, protocol architecture. There are a couple of different pictures around that show this protocol architecture. The book, I think, has a uh, slightly... Uh, oh no, th this is the kind of picture that we have in the book, but uh, you also see sometimes different kind of pictures. And I'm not going into the details. Uh, anyway, what do you see? You see that it is running over uh, TCP. That is the transport protocol, the connectionless reliable transport protocol. However, there's also an option to run it over UDP. So you can run TLS over TCP and UDP. Immediately on top, you have the record protocol, which takes care for confidentiality and message integrity. So the encryption of the data is done in this record protocol. And then you have a couple of protocols on top, which is the handshake protocol, the protocol which you use to start the TLS connection. Um, then you have a change cipher spec protocol. So here you, you negotiate the initial symmetric keys, but after a while you may want to change the keys. You may even want to change your encryption algorithm, and that's done in this change cipher spec protocol. There's an alert protocol if something goes wrong. And finally, you have the application protocol. I'll have one slide on the application protocol, but in practice you often see HTTP running on top of that. Um, what I'll do on the next slides is uh, I first start with this handshake protocol um, and explain how you set up a TLS, TLS connection. Um, if you look at... Uh, a client, so a web browser and a server, so the web server, you basically have three phases. The first phase is a peer negotiation phase in which you determine which algorithms you want to use. So here you decide um, what is the uh, encryption algorithm. Do we use DES or uh, AES or whatever? After that, you have a key exchange and authentication algorithm. So here you define basically <coughs> what you want to do, and here you define the, uh, yeah, the precise keys, etc. What you do here is you start with public key encryption, but the idea is at the end to have uh, private keys, so symmetric keys. After this is done, you have the third phase, which is the data exchange phase, and here you use the symmetric encryption. So that is the, uh, the rough idea. Uh, if you look at the protocols I had on the previous slide, then the, uh, the handshake uh, protocol is taking care of these phases. If you take the uh, record protocol, it's taking care of the data exchange phase. So how does now the um, first part, the peer negotiation, how does it look like? It's basically uh, as follows. You have uh, the client who, of course, starts the connection. It's the web browser who wants to talk with the server. And you tell a couple of things. For example, what is the SSL or TLS version that you are uh, supporting? Basically, you use, if you have TLS 1.0, you use 3.1 to make it 
say uh, fit with the numbering that you had with SSL. So with SSL, you you could up could go up to 3.0, and if you then have 3.1 coded in this version, it is TLS, and if you have 3.2, it's TLS 1.1. You have a session ID, which is used for this caching I just discussed earlier. And so if you want to create a new uh, TLS connection and you just had one TLS connection, then you can use this session ID. Then there is a random number, which is indeed a random number, but also includes a timestamp, which you use for the key creations, cipher suite, and the compression method. So <coughs> that is what you want to have. And then the server responds with also a server hello and also this data, and basically it then looks at uh, what is the, the, the common what is the common version that we support, for example. Uh, so that is the peer negotiation. The second phase was key exchange and authentication. There, there are a couple of um, interactions possible. The red one is always happening, server hello done. And the blue ones depend on what kind of algorithms you use. So for example, if you use um, X509, which is a well-known public key uh, mechanism, then you can send this uh, certificate. Uh, you can also send, uh, depending on the uh, kind of yeah, choices you make, a server key exchange, but if you have X509, then the key may already be in this uh, certificate, so you don't need this extra one. Um, finally, also the server can ask for the client to be uh, authenticated, so the client sends something back, which is, anyway, this client key exchange, but may also send the authentication certificate uh, back. And here you uh, can even uh, send something back to verify this uh, certificate. If for some reason, after a while, you decide that you have to change your uh, keys, uh, so you want to negotiate new keys, or you want to change from algorithm, or you want to change something else, or whatever, then you have to change cipher spec protocol, and you can basically redo this functionality you had in the previous uh, phase. Okay, once you have set up your TLS connection, then the data phase starts. So the application data, which is usually HTTP, or, and it can be, say, pictures, it can be movies, it can be whatever. This application data, that is what you give to the TLS protocol. The first thing you then do is that you fragment this data into smaller fragments. Uh, and the size of these fragments is maximum 16 kilobytes or shorter. So if you want to send a movie of many, or you include a movie of many megabytes on your web page, it will be sent in fragments of maximum 16 kilobytes. After you have fragmented the data, you may optionally compress it. There's some rules when you may compress it when not, but anyway, it's a possibility. Once it is compressed, you can add a message authentication code at the end for authentication purposes and also for checking if there have been uh, changes uh, in the data. Then you encrypt the entire stuff, and then the last thing that you do is you append TLS header, which basically says which version you use, um, what is the higher layer protocol, what is the length of this field. Uh, what I said, it is a maximum of 16 kilobytes, but it can, of course, be shorter. So that kind of stuff is put in this, uh, in this header. Okay, that is then TLS. Uh, 
TLS is used primarily by HTTP, although there are also other protocols that can uh, run on top of TLS. Um, you can run uh, email on top of it. You can uh, run um, uh, yeah, uh, different email uh, version, uh, yeah, protocols, SMTP, IMAP, POP3, etc. That's all possible. But usually you run the yeah, web pages on top of it. HTTPS is like SSL, introduced by uh, Netscape. Uh, it's uh, what I already explained, uh, application on top of it. Uh, it is, however, exactly the same as the HTTP protocol. So although there's an S here, the protocol is exactly the same, but it runs over SSL TLS. Uh, instead of port 80, um, you run HTTPS over port 443. Uh, what you also need is that uh, servers need certificates. So usually it is that the server is authenticated. Uh, the server is your bank, for example. You want to make sure that you're not talking with someone in uh, China who pretends to be your bank. So the server certificate is uh, with HTTPS uh, used. But um, you may also have certificates for your clients. So this is something that you can use in a company environment where you have a website and you want to limit access to your website or parts of your website only to a certain number of clients. You just use HTTPS and you request from the, uh, the server side that the client should always have a certificate. This is an alternative and probably much nicer way to do, say, access, uh, access control. You also have HTTP. Uh, sorry, uh, .ht access files in which you can say, well, these IP addresses can access or not, but uh, this is a nicer mechanism. The cost, however, is that every client that needs to connect needs to have a certificate, which is a relatively expensive operation. Okay. I'm a bit late, so I should go a bit faster. SSH. SSH is not what some people think a uh, protocol on top of uh, SSL. Uh, it is uh, invented as a replacement for Telnet, Remote Login, Remote Shell. These were all, say, Unix utilities, Unis, Unix programs uh, till the mid-90s, uh, and they were simply not secure. Uh, Telnet passwords were sent unencrypted over the wire, which is a bit stupid, of course. In uh, 95, uh, there was SSH version 1, then uh, was version 2. There was a company uh, by the the person who started SSH to make uh, money out of it, but uh, then uh, people started to do open SSH and standardized it also in the IETF, and um, nowadays everyone uses this uh, open SSH uh, approach. If you look at the architecture, um, yeah, this is then, say, the layering. You run it over TCP. SSH is not run over uh, UDP. Uh, you have the SSH transport protocol, then you have the user authentication protocol, then you have the connection protocol, and I will go through these protocols. This one I will discuss first. And basically this SSH transport protocol takes care of server authentication, so if you remote log in into a system, then this SSH transport protocol authenticates the server. It takes care of confidentiality, so it makes sure that data is encrypted if you send it over the wire. Integrity, so no one can change it, and optionally you can also do compression. 
On top of that, this user authentication protocol takes care of client authentication. So first the server authenticates and later the client authenticates, but with a completely different algorithm. And then you can put logical channels on top of yeah, uh, SSH. So this is also a mechanism to um, make SSH use more efficient. But what you see here is that you can use multiple SSH applications in parallel at the same time, which makes somehow sense for the environment where SSH is used for. If I look back at TLS, we didn't have that you had multiple TLS applications in parallel, but you had them in time sequentially. So they both do something to improve efficiency, but they do completely different things. And so you multiple applications in parallel versus uh, multiple connections in time. Okay, let's start with this transport protocol. Um, in, you have again this initial key exchange uh, to go from public uh, to uh, yeah, symmetric keys. Diffie-Hellman is one of the options for that. Encryption, you have a couple of uh, encryption algorithms, AES, uh, triple DAS. Uh, triple DAS is still required because these are the old implementations, but you are recommended to use AES. Server authentication, um, you again have something which is required, but this is the thing that is recommended, which is stronger than the required one, but you also have optional ones. Like here, you have many optional encryption algorithms. Um, and finally, you may do compression, but if you do it, you use uh, Zlib. Let's uh, start with this uh, uh, transport protocol uh, for SSH. What you basically have is uh, in time, uh, time is going down, you have uh, the following steps. First, SSH version string exchange, then you do the SSH key exchange and algorithm negotiation, and then the SSH data exchange. Before that, of course, you have to set up your TCP connection and at the end you can release it uh, again. If you, um, you want to exchange data, oh yeah, it can also be that after a while, so um, I think it's one hour or it is um, uh, one gigabyte of data, it can be that you have to change your keys and then you have this key algorithm renegotiation within the data exchange phase. How do the packets that you transfer, how do they look like? Uh, well, they start with packet lengths. Uh, they have encrypted payload. Uh, they have a random padding field. This is for the same reason as we had the padding field in uh, IPsec. This can be block-based uh, code, so you may need a certain length to um, do your um, encryption on. And at the end, you put a message authentication code. If you now look at the authentication of the server, okay, so usually it's a remote system where you log in, that is based on server's host keys. So that is not based on, say, uh, X509 certificates, but it is some kind of host key that the server makes, uh, which is somehow understandable. If you use SSH, you usually connect to a machine nearby, which you know. 
if you connect to a web server, it may be a web server which is at the other end of the world, and you have no clue what machine it is. So, therefore, we use with uh, SSL TLS, we use this uh, X509 certificates, whereas here we use this, say, much weaker but easier to implement host keys. The client must check, of course, this, uh, this key, but there are different models how you can do that. You can somehow have a pre-configured local database. Um, you can um, also uh, use some uh, trusted uh, certificate authority. Uh, you can uh, use some external channel, for example, the phone, to tell this key, but it's a long one, so you easily make typos. What is the thing that most people do is the best effort. You accept the first time that you connect to a server, this host key. So everyone who has used SSH has seen that this is the first time you connect to this server. This is the key. Do you trust it? And then you usually accept it. It is then saved in your local database, and the next time you check against the saved key value. So if the first one you accepted, but it was the wrong one, then you have a problem. So that is how the authentication of the server works. If you now look at the user, you have again uh, multiple methods. You have, uh, in theory, public key mechanisms. You can do it, but hardly anyone, I think, is doing it. You have passwords, which is, uh, of course, uh, very uh, common. You have uh, host-based. So with these methods, uh, passwords, you identify the user at the opposite side, but it can also be that you say, well, I just want to authenticate the, how the client machine. So everyone who is able to log in from this client machine gets access. So then you do host-based authentication. Um, and there's also something which is uh, keyboard interactive, and which is kind of challenge response system. Uh, with your bank, for example, you, depending on the bank, you have uh, that you get a kind of number. You have to type it in, or you have to look it up in, in, uh, on a piece of paper, and then you type another code in, and that's a keyboard interactive uh, thing. Um, if you look at SSH and you don't do anything, then uh, after a while it will be timed out. Ten minutes is a quite common value, but to make sure that you keep your connection, you can also tell that you want to send keep alive. So then uh, the timeout will not happen. Finally, if you want to um, break in, then at a certain moment the server stops. Usually that's after 20 attempts. Uh, Anna did uh, four years of study on SSH attacks, and uh, she has seen a lot of brute force attacks, but uh, at a certain moment they simply stop because you can get too many attempts. Okay, that's the, the way how the user is authenticated. Then uh, the SSH uh, connection protocol, which was, say, the protocol on top, which you basically use to multiplex different applications. Um, so the multiplexing protocol uh, can be used to, to open channels and close channels, each channel for a separate application. Um, or you have multiple transport, no, sorry, um, yeah. Uh, each application uses, uh, say, one, one dedicated channel, but you can also use it for out-of-band control. So there are a couple of... Uh, Things where, for example, you want to have the data that goes into a certain uh, window at your uh, other size in one channel. But if you want to change the size of the window or you want to exercise some flow control or whatever, you can do it via a second SSH channel, so you do that out of band. 
and yeah, of, you have to somehow identify the channels so you have for that uh, channel numbers. Some um, standard uh, channel types are shell, that is what most people use, they log in into a remote system. But there's also something like direct uh, TCPIP and forwarded TCPIP, and I will come to that in two slides from now. First, SSH applications. Um, you have the secure shell, which is the most used one, but you can also do secure copy, secure FTP, uh, secure shell file system, which is a Linux uh, kind of thing. For uh, SNMP, you have the integrated security model for SNMP. By the way, SNMP, secure SNMP, is in the book of uh, Stallings, but it's not part of the, uh, of the exam uh, stuff. And you can also use it for port forwarding, which is, or at least was, a quite uh, popular application. If, for example, um, on the campus you would like to connect to an, uh, a server, you do that on a specific port. It might be that uh, the campus has uh, suddenly, had this, this worked well for a period of time, and then they have included a firewall, and then you can't access this port X anymore from outside the, the, the campus. So the firewall blocks everything to port X. If you then have access to some server here, uh, which runs SSH, then you can simply build an SSH connection between your client and the, the server within the campus, and the application data is then just tunneled over this uh, SSH connection, and this system sends your application data further to the server here, uh, to the port X, which was blocked by the firewall, uh, and uh, in this way you can still connect to other systems. This is what uh, network managers don't like, and this is what uh, users uh, like a lot, uh, for obvious reasons. Okay. If you want to know more about SSH, uh, it's not in the book, uh, but Wikipedia has uh, perfect information. You can go to the IETF working group, but uh, that may be too detailed. And you have here two sites on the web which provide uh, nice SSH info. Final slide. Um, I want to compare SSH versus SSL TLS. If you look at SSH, we see that server authentication must always be, be done. If you look at SSL, it is optional, although if you run, for example, HTTPS, what most people do, it is generally chosen. So in practice, there's not a real difference. If you look at client authentication, there are many options, uh, keyboard interactive, passwords, etc. If you want to do client authentication in an SSL TLS environment, you have to use public keys. But this is quite uncommon that you ask a browser to authenticate. So here it is something which you always ask. There are many options. Here it is something which you hardly ask. Um, if you look at server authentication with SSH, it is based on, on keys. If you look at uh, server authentication with SSL TLS, it's based on X509 certificates. Finally, for efficiency reasons, SSH allows to run multiple applications in parallel via different logical channels. 
uh, SSL-TLS does not provide such logical channels to create multiple parallel connections. Um, however, SSL-TLS allows you some caching, and so it makes the re-establishment of uh, SSL-TLS connection relatively fast. Questions regarding this part? Did they go fast enough? Yeah. Then uh, I think uh, Anna will uh, take over and tell something for the Kerkhoff students. I don't know if the uh, non-Kerkhoff students need to stay here or how they may stay here, but if you are desperate for a cup of coffee, you can also go to the coffee. After the coffee break, uh, Georges Carigianis takes over with uh, the uh, radius. Hello to everybody. Uh, my name is Anna Sperata, and together with uh, my colleague Giovanni Mora, we are going to take care of this assignment this year. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask you if you are all Kerkhoff, or otherwise, can Kerkhoff here raise his hand so we can just briefly. More or less. So you were around 15 in total, more or less. Okay, well, that was we needed to know. So maybe you already heard from the previous year, a Kerkhoff student gets an honorable assignment, and in this next few minutes, I'm gonna briefly give you an overview of it and if you have questions. Um, so, well, on the practical side, it accounts for one third of your final grades, and uh, we would like to have groups of uh, three students, maximum four students. Um, yeah, well, I suppose many of you already know what an onipot is, but for which you don't know is, uh, well, you know, the most compact way I can explain it now is just a trap for hackers can have high or low interaction accordingly to uh, how it reacts to, to, to uh, incoming connections, and uh, you can have uh, already off-the-shelf solution or uh, customized solution. So. Basically, what is going to happen is that you will get a machine, and on this machine you have, uh, can install your own software, and the aim of this, of this uh, assignment is that we would like you to try to gain as, as real as possible experience with the hackers. So, meaning, well, you have a machine, you will let it be compromised, and you will well, get logs for everything is going to happen there, and we're going to analyze it. Hopefully, you're going to get some interesting behavior there. So, well, your best, uh, the best things to happen to you is that the ha hackers coming to your machine is really logging in, doing something, downloading some code. See, you just have to see what's going on and happen. Then the question can be, how can I make this happen? Well, that's, that's up to you, and I hope it happens without too much effort. Usually it happens without too much effort. And we can discuss if what you see is interesting or less interesting, but I hope you get compromised. Um, well, as a side effect, while you're doing this, you should also learn how to set up a monitoring on Onibot. So what is of my interest here is, well, you are Kerker students, so I'm pretty much sure it will not be a problem for you to set up a Onibot, deciding which software to put there, deciding which, ser which services you're going to put there, possibly hold services. I am much interested in how you're going to monitor in this and that you're going to analyze the data. So from my point of view, the, your assignment gets interesting in the moment you have a lot of data and you start to see what's really going on. Too few data, 
does not give you a good idea what's happening. Uh, many data are nice, but then you have to find out a way, a smart way to analyze it. I think that monitoring and analyzing is really an important side of this, uh, uh, of this assignment. Well, the setup is simple. We um, give you a honeypot, well, we give you a Ubuntu virtual machine. Uh, well, the reason for virtualizing is pretty obvious. It's easier to deploy and also easier to <coughs> take you out of the network in the moment something goes really wrong. Uh, you can install whatever software you like. You can uh, put that off the shelf, as I said, honeypot uh, uh, there. You can have a little bit less uh, traditional honeypot. That means you can have your own machine simply there with service you decided, but a good monitoring setup, logging setup. This case is not officially a honeypot, but yeah, you see, you just have a uh, safe, easy to compromise machine, and we do hi Georges, and we do, and you just monitor it. Again, for me, it's really important you monitor it, you collect a good amount of data for yourself. Okay, so I'll give you a brief timeline of what's going to happen. Well, we have one week from now for arrange yourself into groups. I'm sure that's, that's not really been a problem. Then basically, you're going to have different phases. Uh, first, you set up yeah, the onipot, then you monitor their activity. You have certain point we will switch off for the machines, and you will just get the traffic you collected or the data you collected, and you analyze it, and then you're going to have an exam. So, exam presentation. So, for the setup, you have indicatively three weeks, and at the end of this uh, phase, we would like to have uh, a report. Um, Okay, from the end of November to roughly the bit after the middle of December, you monitor the onipot activity. Well, this what does it mean? It means that for you, the big part is going to be getting an idea of a good setup. And this part is mainly for you waiting to see what happens. So the, the load of work is a little bit different. However, I would like to have some two extra meetings with you because I, by experience, I said last year that this really helped. Two years ago, students were still setting up the machine one week before the end of exam, uh, the, yeah, the end, the final deadline, so maybe we tried not to make this happen. Um, and during these meetings, there's, the idea is that you came, you have a very brief presentation, don't get scared, like three, four slides, one per group, uh, and you share with the others your experience. This helps you to, uh, it's a good checkpoint to see what my group did, what the other did, uh, why did I manage, not manage to install this software, why the other group managed, and so it's collaborative. Okay, I give you more or less, we give you more or less two weeks for um, analyze your data. So I hope you have a lot of data, and I especially I hope you have a good strategy how to analyze that. Otherwise, good luck in doing it in two weeks. Uh, and finally, uh, 14th of January is the day you present your results to us, to ICOR and to us of our group might want to join, and you get your grade there. Um, before you ask, there's not yet a time in which not set yet, but we will let you know, more or less. We usually try to uh, have all these meetings in a time frame that uh, can suit whoever you ask to travel from Andover, Neymagen, or Wales, but okay. Let's keep it at 14 of October, 14 of the January is the day of your exam. So this is our contact information, but yeah. 
So groups of three people, occasionally four. I let you organizing about it. Um, I would like in one week from now to get an email from you, both of us. Uh, group name, student names, and uh, your email addresses. And uh, after that, you get back information how to connect to your own machine. And well, I hope you had fun. Usually, people have quite some fun. Um, differently from the last year, we put you behind the firewall this year. So I hope nothing really bad is going to happen. Like no machine of yours got quarantined because they went, uh, I don't know, around uh, scanning other machine or so on. That's happened, but it was interesting. But yeah, you know, it's a side effect of letting you a lot of freedom. However, we didn't decide yet which firewall rules we're going to apply. We're going to decide this also on the basis of which services you're going to run on your Honeypot. So we tried, you know, it's a trade-off. If we let you a lot of freedom, it's really interesting, but you might damage someone else. And I don't believe you're going to stay 24-7 about checking your Honeypot. On the other hand, if we just set a sort of uh, firewall rules, like we drop any outgoing connection with the Honeypot, that's really boring for you. So we try not to do that. So according to what you're going to set up, we decided what can be. And that's basically everything I have to, to say at the moment. So just please, if you have any question, otherwise you can contact us from email, by email. Okay, well, there is, uh, there will be on uh, Blackboard these slides and uh, uh, the assignment itself that gives you a little bit more information and then uh, later we will get, give you more information by email. Now that's it. So, thanks. Network security. This lecture, during this lecture, we'll discuss AAA protocols. But before doing that, I would like to uh, deal with answers of the uh, uh, homework assignments associated with the second lecture. Yes? Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, the answers, uh, you can find the answers uh, on, on the black via Blackboard, yeah? So then I will not do it. <laughs> I didn't know that. Okay, so let, then uh, what we could do is to skip that. Uh, you could check the answers on the Blackboard, and if you have any comments, questions, then you can uh, email or come, come to my office, okay? So let's start with the, uh, with the second part of uh, lecture four, and that is the associated with AAA protocols. AAA stands for authentication, authorization, and accounting. Um, the material associated with this part of the lecture could be found um, via Blackboard, course, course information, and then the file name is the radius underscore diameter dot txt and this file includes actually text that is copied from three RFCs and these RFCs are actually describing and specifying the um, AAA protocols that we'll discuss today and these are the radius and diameter protocols not all details from the file have to be memorized um, and uh, before the exam 
I will give a guideline on what part of the text actually have to study and uh, uh, know very well. And that's for the exam. So let's go through the outline of this presentation. First I will um, present the goal. Then I will give uh, some definition associated with what uh, AAA is. Um, then I will discuss the basic uh, operation of uh, RADIUS. Uh, RADIUS is an one AAA protocol that is uh, specified by the ITF, and that is the Internet Engineering Task Force. Then I will uh, go through the discussion uh, of the uh, uh, diameter protocol. We'll discuss the basic operation of that protocol. Subsequently, we will uh, see, and I hope that we can understand the main differences between diameter uh, versus radius. And we conclude with uh, summary uh, references. So let's go, let's go through the goal of the lecture. As what the title mentions, uh, we'll um, actually, uh, well, the goal is to understand the AAA concept and also to understand which protocols are used by this context and how they are used. So what's AAA? AAA, as I already mentioned, stands for authentication, authorization, and accounting. And um, they are actually needed when a user tries to access and use the internet. And um, here I'm giving some definitions of these uh, terms. So authentication stands is an act or a process that is used to verify the identity of an entity. The authorization is, an, is a process or an act that is used to determine whether an entity that is requesting access is allowed to, uh, to use uh, the resource, to get access to the resource and use this resource. And accounting uh, is, an, is a process or an act that is used um, to collect information and this information is uh, uh, applied for the purpose of capacity planning, billing, etc. As I already mentioned, um, this concept is standardized by the ITF, that's the Internet Engineering Task Force, and um, the concept is specified in three main uh, RFCs, but we'll see later on that um, more RFCs are specifying this concept. Um, one of these RFCs specifies the generic AAA architecture, another one the AAA authorization application examples, and the third one the AAA authorization framework. And an example use of uh, AAA, as we have already seen in the second lecture, we have seen that AAA um, and the radius or the diameter protocols could be used in combination with the IEEE 802.1x framework to enhance the wireless LAN authentication and authorization. 
So uh, in these slides you can see an example scenario of a AAA architecture. The main components of the AAA concept are the AAA clients, uh, the AAA server, and the proxy. And what is the functionality of each of these? The AAA client actually generates a AAA request that is associated with, uh, with an user. And this request is um, actually sent towards the AAA server using the AAA protocol. The AAA server receives this request and uh, depending on the information that this request carries and the information that is stored on AAA data storage or repositories, um, the request is verified and if certain um, and the AAA server then decides to accept, to admit the request or to reject the request. This information is sent back to the AAA client and uh, if the request is accepted then the user is allowed to access and use the internet and otherwise is not allowed to do that. The proxy is in, uh, you can see it as a server that is actually used to forward the AAA request towards the server and uh, so it is actually used to support the communication of diameter messages between the AAA client and AAA server. The proxy is not allowed to, um, to provide authentication and authorization uh, uh, procedures, but it is allowed to modify the AAA, the, the radius, the AAA messages in um, using some local policies that are configured within the proxy. The AAA client now, it could be a network access server and um, this network access server could actually support wired devices, so PCs with other kinds of wired devices via uh, modems for example. A AAA client could also be an access point um, an authenticator, as we have seen during the second lecture, that actually supports the access for a uh, wire wireless device, such as a wireless station. The AAA protocol supports actually the communication, as I already mentioned, between different AAA uh, components, between AAA clients and the AAA servers. There are different AAA protocols specified by the ITF. The first one was this one, the TACAX. But this is a very simple uh, AAA protocol. And uh, I will not discuss it dur during this um, part of the lecture. But we'll focus on the radius and diameter protocols. And both these protocols are actually um, quite severely deployed and used. So let's go through the basic operation of uh, RADIUS. So AAA, uh, RADIUS is a AAA protocol and is used to carry AAA information between the AAA client and the shared AAA server. 
what are the key features of radius. Um, so as I already mentioned, the main components are the client and the server. Um, the client could be a network access server that, that generates a AAA request, and the server could actually handle the request and uh, could operate also as a process, or uh, we have already seen, seen that in, in the previous example. Um, another fe uh, feature that is provided and supported by uh, Radius is net network security. And the way how Radius is supporting network security is by uh, authenticating the transactions using a shared secret key. And what's important to see is that um, this shared secret key is um, uh, shared on a manual manner, distributed in a manual manner between the client and the server. And this might actually cause severe problems when uh, a large network uses the Radius protocol. Any user passwords are hidden using the Message Digest 5 and uh, also other kind of mechanisms. The end-to-end um, -end security could be supported but is not guaranteed. Um, and it can only be supported for non-proxy radios. Redis is also, uh, supporting flexible authentication mechanisms. For example, the point-to-point uh, -point protocol CHAP that stands for Challenge Handshake Authentication Protocol. And of course, also the um, extensible authentication protocol that we have seen its operation during the second lecture. And uh, Radius is an extensible protocol. And um, why is that? I mean, what is the, the feature that uh, specifies this extensibility? The AAA attribute information, so the information that is associated with authentication, out, um, authorization, and accounting, can be carried in attribute length value uh, fields. Uh, so each radius message will actually uh, be formed by, by having a header and uh, a number of attribute length value fields. And in these attribute length value fields, uh, different AAA attribute information could be, could be included. Um, when new AAA applications are defined, uh, this new uh, the, that will actually need to use different attribute values. These new attribute values will be included in uh, in new attribute length value fields without distur disturbing existing implementations. Yeah. So in this way, the extensibility um, is, is is supported. Another feature is that it uses TCP as transfer protocol, the user data gram protocol. Now I would like to go through the um, um,
specifications to the documents that actually specify the radius framework. Yeah. <coughs> As I already mentioned, radius is using the uh, UDP as a transfer protocol. Uh, the base functionality of radius, so as base functionality I mean um, with base functionality, I mean uh, the specification of the format of the messages, radius messages, uh, the processing of how the, these messages are processed, um, and also out certain authentication and uh, authoriz authorization features are specified in the radius based protocol, and it is actually meant to be used by IPv4 communication networks. In association with this radius-based protocol, uh, several radius applications are uh, also specified, and you can see them here. Also, an accounting application is uh, specified, so uh, um, users could use the accounting ap application specification combination with radius-based protocol to um, to uh, have uh, or to, to be able to use a radius accounting application. Um, this specification is also important because it defines certain gu uh, guidelines on how someone could, could uh, specify uh, their own applications and uh, so how they will be able to actually include their own uh, attributes in, uh, in new attribute value, attribute length value uh, fields. And this specification actually um, explains and describes what are the guidelines to provide this. Another application is the um, extensible authentication protocol application. The the way of how the radius is uh, provided and used in an IPv6 <coughs> communication network is specified in this in this uh, RFC. Um, another application is the chargeable user identity that could be used to provide um, real-time accounting. So think some examples associated with that are related to the prepaid uh, service provided by cellular uh, uh, systems. And the IEEE 802.1x usage, uh, usage guideline that actually specify how the radius protocol could be used in combination with, with the IEEE 802.1x framework. So what I already <coughs> mentioned you can also read in this text. Then I'll go to the message types. So radio supports different uh, message types. Um, the uh, access request, access accept, and access reject uh, messages are actually used uh, by authentication and authorization uh, procedures. The accounting request and accounting response messages are used by uh, 
uh, accounting procedures. The access challenge is also used for authentication and authorization. And these two messages are uh, used for uh, failover, uh, kind of failover uh, support. Uh, but it's experimental, so it's optional. And up to 255, uh, so the codes from 14 up to 255 are reserved for uh, radio. So let's go now through uh, a message sequence chart. And uh, that shows the establishment and the termination procedure for authentication, authorization, and accounting. It is very important to note that um, the authentication, authorization, and accounting procedures are using the same session. So the same session ID is actually used for all the, these procedures. Uh, here in this slide you can see a radius client and a radius server. So the radius client will send an access request at the moment that uh, the user wants to access the internet, for example. Um, the radius server will actually uh, process this message and will uh, uh, check the, the attributes. In this case, an attribute is the user password. So this user password will actually be verified with the information that the server has about, the, about this user. And if the verification is positive, then the, then the uh, request will be uh, admitted. And uh, this will be sent, so the accept will be actually sent towards the client. And uh, by using this procedure, then an authentication authorization session is established. After this uh, process, suppose that uh, also the accounting application is used, the Radius client will, will start, will send an accounting request with a start, to start an accounting session. If this request is uh, admitted, then, then the client will be notified about it, and uh, then the accounting session could, is established and could start. So that this was an example of how, of how the authentication authorization uh, sessions are established and also how the accounting session is established. Uh, subsequently, you can see how, uh, how, the termination, how the termination of these sessions takes place. Um, the only messages that have to be sent in order to terminate uh, all these sessions is an accounting request with an attribute of stop by, uh, by the client. And then uh, if this request is uh, admitted by the server, then the, the client is, inf is informed that the accounting session is stopped, is terminated. And now I have a question for you. As I already mentioned, Radis is using UDP as a transfer protocol. And why do you think that 
Radius is using UDP instead of TCP. So what's the difference between uh, UDP and TCP? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's faster. Mm -hmm. It's simpler. It's more simple. Yeah. Yeah, the question connection and it has also to do with the fact that um, Radius is a stateless protocol. Okay, so then what you already uh, answered is is right, but there are some more advantages that were actually uh, um, described by the designers of uh, Radius. And uh, the main motivation of using UDP, the main motivation used by the designers of, uh, of Radius, was that um, if a request to the primary authentication server fails, this will mean that the AAA client will have to resend the request to another server. This will mean that a copy of, of the request will anyway have to be maintained at the application layer above the transport layer. So um, by doing that, you actually do not need TCP to do the same thing. Um, Another motivation was related to the fact that the retransmission timers of the application layer are still required. So actually you don't have to, um, to use the retransmission timers of TCP because then you have to use this search, search timers twice. Then the status nat nature of radius protocol um, within the communication net network simplifies the use of TCP and um, this has to do with the, with the transport connection between a client and the server because this connection could actually remain uh, even if the network fail failures are occurring. So this is used by the uh, by the designers of radius to use UDP instead of TCP. But of course there are some disadvantages. The transport is not reliable using UDP. And uh, this will mean that the layer above transport has to take care of uh, any packet losses. And uh, also the uh, um, UDP does not support network, uh, uh, well does not solve network congestion while TCP does support network uh, is able to solve the network congestion. So these are the main advantages and disadvantages associated with the use of UDP instead of TCP.
questions associated with, uh, with the basic operation of radius? So now I will go through the uh, description of the diameter, op diameter operation. So diameter is also triple AAA protocol that is similar to, uh, um, that is able to support similar AAA features as radius, but with enhanced and, and additional capabilities. And um, what are these additional capabilities? First of all, it is able to uh, negotiate uh, different capabilities. So the diameter nodes are able to negotiate certain capabilities. This is not possible with, uh, by, uh, uh, when radius is used. It, it is scaling the AAA information and uh, attribute value pairs. This is something similar as the attribute length value fields that we have seen in radius. Um, so actually the, the diameter messages consist of, uh, of a header and a header and some other fields in the header and then the attribute value pairs fields. And this attribute value pairs fields actually carry the AAA information. Uh, also, uh, error notification is supported. So if an error occurs, then uh, uh, the sender is notified um, that an error occurred. Extensibility, similar to what the radius is, uh, is able to do, uh, but now through the addition of new commands and, uh, and new attribute value pairs. The <coughs> uh, diameter is also able to support basic services for applications um, that are associated with handling of user sessions and accounting, but also uh, session state maintenance. It is important to emphasize that the diameter is a stateful protocol. So for each session, it supports the state. And in addition to that, each um, application and each procedure could use its own session. So now we'll see that uh, for accounting, a separate session could be used. Um, then the session that is used for authentication and authorization. So these sessions are actually initiated by the same client associated with the same user, but they could be different. They would have a different ID, and they could be sent to different AAA servers. So you might have situations where, where the authentication and authorization is um, supported by one AAA server, while, uh, while accounting could be supported by another AAA server. And these both sessions are associated with the same user. Um, each session state is actually maintained by using an, a, a timer. And this timer has a time to leave. And it is um, the value of this timer is, uh, could be uh, or is negotiated using this capability negotiation feature. 
Another key feature of Diameter is uh, the support of hop-to-hop -hop security that is using IPsec and is uh, mandatory and you could also use uh, the transport uh, layer security and that's optional. And how this uh, hop-by-hop -hop, hop -hop security is uh, accomplished? Uh, authentication is supported by using uh, a shared secret key and that's what's important is that this secret key is distributed using automatic key distribution and the uh, authentication mechanisms that I used are listed here. And also encryption is supported at each hop uh, by using a uh, secret key and the uh, security mechanism used is the data encryption standard. The attribute value pairs are used by the amateur to support the transport of uh, user authentication information, uh, authorization or accounting information. And in addition to that, by using the AVP, um, relaying and proxying of the amateur messages could be supported. The transport, um, the amateur clients must support both TCP and HTTP, the streaming control transfer protocol and the transmission control protocol. While the agents, and we'll see in a while what I mean with the agents, and the servers must support both uh, TCP and HTTP as transfer protocols. Um, as I already mentioned, uh, different sessions could be uh, used for uh, the different applications. So a different authentication authorization session management maybe could be independent. So due to this feature, the management of these sessions could be independent. So accounting information could be um, routed to a different server than the server that um, actually is used for authentication and, uh, and accounting. But of course, this some kind of, of uh, dependency between the sessions have to uh, be supported and therefore an, um, a specific attribute value pair is used. And uh, you can see it here, act multi-session ID to correlate these different sessions. Um, <coughs> the diameter-based protocol provides, provides um, some minimum requirements. So it is important to emphasize that the base protocol, so it is, we'll see in a while, um, that also base protocol is specified in, uh, in one RFC. And, uh, but it, this, this base protocol could be used, may be used for accounting purposes only. So if you want to use this base protocol in combination uh, or for accounting, for example, you have to use it in combination with, with another specification. Um, 
we'll see in a while what, what I mean. It's the NASREC uh, specification that specifies authorization and authorization procedures. Uh, or, uh, for example, another um, diameter application is the mobile IPv4 uh, application. And may, it may be extended for the use <coughs> in new applications with new commands or new attributed value pairs. It's a peer, diameter is a peer-to-peer -peer protocol. And uh, the main char characteristic of this is that each diameter node could initiate uh, a request. While in uh, radius, only the radius client would initiate the request. Um, so let's go through a definition of the, of the diameter nodes. The diameter client um, is a node at the edge of the network that's actually able to generate diameter messages associated with certain user. And um, these diameter messages, of course, are able to uh, carry authentication, authorization, accounting information towards the server. Then the diameter agent. Um, so these are actually new nodes that, uh, uh, that are, well, only the proxy could, uh, is also used by radius. But the other, the other nodes, the relay, redirect, and translation agents are, are new nodes, new triple A nodes. The relay nodes, uh, relay node is actually used to uh, route diameter messages between, uh, within the, the diameter uh, uh, network by using a specific AVP routing record. So actually what uh, this uh, node is doing is uh, actually uh, is reading, is, uh, reading an, uh, an AVP routing record and depending on this information is able to route a diameter message towards the diameter server. Another node is the or diameter agent is the proxy and the proxy is able to provide the functionality that's also that's provided by the relay uh, agent but in addition to that the proxy could also uh, modify certain attributes using some preconfigured policies uh, that are stored at the, at the proxy another agent is the re redirect uh, agent this redirect agent is actually not able to route um, diameter messages but is able to and to notify the sender of a diameter message of the address of the uh, of a diameter server so is that the source the sender could actually redirect the message towards the server um, another agent is the translation agent that is able to translate radius for example radius protocol message messages into diameter protocol message messages and vice versa but um, any diameter uh, agent is not able to authenticate and or authorize uh, messages lo locally so this can only be done by the server 
Um, so the server is actually the features that are supported by the diameter server are uh, similar to the ones supported by the radius server. And uh, this is an also an important feature. A node may, may act as an um, uh, agent for certain requests, for certain sessions, and uh, as a server for other sessions and other requests. So let's go through the document architecture. So the uh, specification of the diameter protocol, you can see it as a framework that is specified using different RFCs. Um, these are shown here. Uh, transport uh, profile is specified in this RFC that actually gives guidelines on how diameter could, uh, could use TCP and HTTP, but also how um, failover uh, mechanisms are supported. So if, um, if a failure occurs in the network and uh, uh, say in a diameter agent uh, is not, cannot be used anymore, then by using this specification, a failover mechanism could be uh, uh, used to solve this problem. Another specification that uh, <coughs> describes the uh, base features of the amateur is this one, the diameter base protocol. And uh, this base protocol specifies the format of the messages used specify the processing of how the, the messages are processed. And uh, also, it provides information about the accounting application. Um, then other applications are defined, as you can see them there. Um, many of them are similar to what we have seen for radius. Um, it is also important to emphasize that the diameter-based protocol is actually specified and can be used in IPv4 and IPv6 uh, networks. Yeah, while the base protocol for the radius-based protocol could only be used for uh, IPv4 networks. Um, in addition to what we have seen for radius, diameter, so, diameter also specify uh, SIP application and SIP stands for session initiation protocol. So actually this specification describes how uh, SIP entities that are used for example in, uh, in different uh, systems like uh, UMTS, um, how they, they are able to use diameter. Um, then other type of uh, applications are the diameter mobile IPv6. So it specifies how uh, diameter could be used in combination with mobile IPv6. Uh, proxy mobile IPv6, um, this specification describes the traffic classification and quality of service attributes. So it describes what kind of um, some guidelines on how uh, um, diameter could be used for QoS support. And uh, actually this specification is, is applied in the diameter QoS application where also an, um, quality of service support could be provided by using diameter. So what I emphasized previously, you can also uh, 
uh, read the text. So now let's go through the uh, message types or command names. Um, there are many, the list of, of messages, so of, uh, of uh, command names used of, uh, is larger than um, the one used in the radius. And uh, uh, there are some of them used for uh, authentication authorizations, other for accounting, as you can see. Um, these two are used for the capability negotiation, as I mentioned. Um, these two device watchdog are used for the support of uh, failover mechanisms. Um, and what is also important to see is that um, the uh, diameter supports the re-authentication re request message, and this message is initiated by the server. This is not possible in radius. Um, and also, the session could also be terminated by the, by the server. And this could be done by this, using this message. So let's go through a message sequence chart. Uh, I have here three examples. In the first example, you can see a session establishment. Uh, it is assumed that separate authorization and accounting uh, sessions are maintained. Um, so then, similar to radius, an authentication authorization request is sent towards the server. Uh, the server uh, verifies the request, and this could be admitted or rejected. If it is uh, admitted, then uh, the authentication authorization session is established. And then, uh, an accounting, suppose that the client also wants to start an accounting session. Then an accounting request is sent. And if this is uh, admitted, then the accounting could be, uh, session is established. Um, it is, so these are the two procedures that describe the uh, establishment of, of authentication, authorization, and accounting. And as I mentioned, the, uh, um, each session uses, um, it is stateful. So for each session, a state is used, and this state is, is maintained uh, by using a uh, time interval. If this, uh, suppose that um, the time interval that is used by the accounting session is expired, then, <coughs> and the client wants to actually uh, um, use the accounting uh, procedure, accounting session, then it has to restart uh, or to send uh, an accounting request again to the server. So it actually reinitiates the, the accounting procedure. Now I'll go through a reauthorization example, message, message secret chart example. We have again a diameter client and server. And uh, suppose that the lifetime of, uh, of the timer associated with the uh, authentication authorization session is expired and the client wants to keep that, wants to keep the, the session, then it reinitiates re the authentication authorization request. Um, if this is uh, accepted, then this procedure is successful. But note that now uh, also the, the accounting procedure has to be restarted. So if an uh, authentication authorization session expires, 
And uh, the client has to restart this uh, session, then also the accounting session has to be restarted. Um, this situation also shows also that the, uh, uh, that the server could also reinitiate uh, re the authentication authorization session. And this happens in this case due to the fact that uh, the timer associated with authentication is expired at the server. Uh, so after this, then the, then the client, the amateur client, will have to reinitiate the authentication and authorization procedure and also the accounting procedure. And now I have the, the example for session termination. Um, suppose that the amateur server wants to stop the session, an abort session request actually initiated, and that's important because to emphasize that this is only possible in the amateur. Radius could not, the ra radius server could not initiate an, uh, uh, a session termination. So then, after the, the amateur client receives this abort session request, it will actually initiate the session termination. And then also the accounting session has to be terminated. Okay, so these three message sequence charts show um, examples of how session establishment, session um, authorization, uh, reinitiation of the authorization session is, uh, is performed and also session termination. The main differences between diameter versus radius, um, it supports a better transport, um, runs over a reliable transport, uh, lots of packets are retransmitted, um, also persistent connection, so the failover mechanism is, is, is also supported, and TCP and HTTP could be used to adapt to network congestion uh, better proxy. Um, this is because hope by hope transport failure detection is uh, is um, supported and allows failover to occur at the appropriate place. So this is due to the fact that each uh, node is able to uh, to initiate requests. Um, so proxies can locally failover to alternative next hope here and. Um, the proxy can automatically do a retransmission of pending requests quite quickly. A better session control by using this uh, different uh, session management for independent, independent for accounting, and independent for, for uh, authentication authorization. So, and also that the accounting information can be routed to a different server. Um, and of course, also that <coughs> the server could initiate a message to request a session termination and also uh, reauthentication and, and or reauthorization of the user. And better security. Hope I hope security is provided using IPsec or uh, TLS. Uh, and also the automatic secret key exchange is supported. Um, compared to the manual secret key exchange supported in radius. And the end-to-end -end security is now guaranteed. Summary references, 
Uh, I hope that you could understand the AAA concept. Um, the main characteristic of the RADIUS protocol, the main characteristics of the, the AMTA protocol, and the main difference between these two. Here you can find the references, and if you want to search for, for an RFC, that is a request for comments, an ITF specification document, you could use this uh, um, method. And the homework assignments can be found via Blackboard. Do you have any questions? No? Okay, thank you very much, and see you next week.